welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Sue and Charlie, two campaigners who have been working tirelessly on a project to create resources for mental health support in Myanmar called Mental Health Myanmar. Mental Health Myanmar is a website dedicated to informing the Myanmar public about mental health and why it is important for everyone. The contents of the resources are available in 17 ethnic languages. They also have a Facebook page called It's Okay to Not Be Okay. Here, Sue and Charlie talk about the obstacles to mental health awareness in Myanmar, including language barriers and the archaic laws that demonize mental health in the country. They also discuss the strategies they use to look after their own mental health, as well as the resources they have created to reach the most vulnerable in Myanmar at this difficult time. Let's start the conversation. Today, we are joined by Sumyat, Jozo and Charlie, and they are here to talk to us about a project they have about mental health in Myanmar. So you're both very welcome and we're excited to talk to you. So Charlie, if you'd like to introduce yourself first, that would be great. Okay, cool. Um, I think the first major disclaimer is that I am in no way like an expert in, in mental health at all, really. Basically, my my kind of background was working in, I guess, like project management kind of communications in Myanmar. So I was I was there for eight years, basically. So I first got there in like late late 2014 and I kind of I first went there doing kind of like NGO stuff and then I got a bit jaded by NGO stuff a bit disillusioned so then I started running events basically like music events and that was very fun but it wasn't I wasn't really kind of using my head or like kind of doing it was like a fun lifestyle but I wasn't really doing what I wanted to do and then basically through all these events I got to know a lot of singers actors that kind of thing and I, I saw the way that they were, they did a lot of kind of promotion for different like brands like Coca-Cola, Samsung, that kind of thing. And I basically had the idea of using their kind of like creative fame, I guess. But instead of having them sell like Coca-Cola or, or Samsung, having them as like kind of brand ambassadors for various different kind of NGO projects. So then I kind of went back to doing NGO stuff with these kind of celebrities, basically. Because they're they're actually like a great way of of kind of getting getting messages across. Because for a lot of people, they're they're seen as kind of like role models. So if they say do this or don't do this, then then people really listen. So we were basically doing we did a lot of stuff. We did like domestic violence, uh, like landmine awareness. We did like a COVID song. Basically, any kind of issue that that there was, we we did a campaign about it. And then that was up until the coup. And then basically, kind of after the coup. I was trying to think of of what what was like really needed basically, and just was kind of talking to a couple of people and having like been in like Yangon for basically the first half of 2021, I kind of realised that that mental health was like a a huge kind of issue that needed to be addressed. So yeah, then basically I, I kind of I designed this project with the, the I guess the goal is to kind of like raise awareness about kind of mental health the the campaign title was like it's okay to not be okay basically but yeah that's that's kind of my <laughs> quite long 
introduction. That's great. And we'll come back because I definitely have some questions for you. But uh, Sumia Jozo, if you want to just introduce yourself. Hello. Also, same with Charlie. Even if I study, I graduated with psychology. I am not a mental health expert. I study psychology in Myanmar. Studying psychology is not very popular. After I finished my high school, I joined the university and then I didn't know what to study. My dad was like, oh, you should study this subject. So I studied it and I was interested in it. But then when I was talking to my friends and then the parents, they were like, what do you study? I, I told them like, oh, I study psychology. And they would be like, oh, like they would look at me like they would look down on me because I study psychology. But still, I was very interested in psychology. But then I was doing like counseling courses and like, I wasn't doing anything like near professional, but I was doing as much as I could, like listening to my friends when they were like very sad and they didn't know what to do. They came to me and talked to me, like what's going on with them. Like one thing I found that what my friends want is like, they don't want any suggestions or like any solutions. They want someone who actually listened to them, like carefully listened to them. And then I met Charlie and at one point, we started talking about this, like, mental health thing. And then, yeah, he asked me to to be a part of this amazing project, uh, this mental health project. It is quite amazing. That's great. Yeah. And, uh, like, when we, we saw your website and everything, and one of our Myanmar members of the team, you know, had a look, because a lot of your resources are obviously in Myanmar, and they're in so many different languages, ethnic languages. And, and she said to us, I've not seen anything this comprehensive and good in terms of mental health in Myanmar. She was like, it is amazing. So, Charlie, when you said you, you were in Myanmar during the first half of the coup in, in 2021, mm-hmm. are you interested to share your experience there and your decision to leave? No pressure. Oh, to- yeah. I mean, it was, <laughs> I, I don't really know how to kind of describe it. I mean, it was incredibly dramatic, I think. I mean, I always, because I, I was in, I was in like Yangon since 2014, and I always used to remember that there's no, there's no filter on Facebook. So obviously, everyone uses Facebook. Facebook is is like for many people like the internet, and there's just there was just no filter on on kind of Facebook even even before. Like I remember there were like kind of Facebook groups where there, if there's like a car crash or something, like people would just kind of go and just take photos, and there was people would share it basically there was no there was no kind of filter and then when something like the coup happened like everything was it was all like live streamed and all the photos and all the videos it was just a constant kind of stream of incredibly like traumatic pictures and videos and stories and yeah I mean it was just even just kind of exposure to to those kind of graphics and those images was just I was I, I don't know not not great for for anyone's mental health I would say were you tempted to stay, Charlie, given how long? I assume like you built your whole life life over there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I left, but I didn't really know where else to go because, I mean, like you said, I, I kind of built my my life there. When I first came to, to Myanmar, my plan was to kind of do two years at this job and then like kind of I would get posted somewhere else for two years. But then I just kind of decided that I was going to really like stay in one place and like learn the language and kind of really kind of invest in in one place basically so I I really didn't want to leave and it was actually kind of family and friends that made me leave I think if if it hadn't been for them I I think I probably would have stayed um and I'm I'm quite glad 
that I did leave because I think it's only when I left because this this was in when I left I had to do the the two week quarantine in in Bangkok and I just remember like the sense of relief once you're in that hotel room in Bangkok which was quite a weird experience just that kind of sense of relief of of not having to kind of be in such a I guess like a stressful situation anymore and I I mean I actually I went back I was there this summer as well I went back for a little bit it's not the same as it as it used to be I think it's, it's, there's always kind of like a nagging this nagging feeling like is is something going to happen or and just yeah in terms of Sumyat Jozo were you in the country when the coup happened or were you already outside of the country I was in the country when it happened yeah how long after the the coup did you did you leave after two months so I was in the country when the coup happened and then after two months I left Myanmar in April so like in that two month period I I was experiencing all of these all of these things in Myanmar I was in the strikes I was doing all the things but then my parents they want to leave the country and then they don't actually speak the English and at that time they want direct flight to Bangkok from Yangon to Bangkok they had to flew to Singapore and then do the 18 hours layover there like fly to Bangkok that's why they don't speak English I had to go with them yeah after two months I left yeah and then I actually came back like past three months after all of the periods I was in Bangkok. I don't know. It's it's just, I don't like the, the feeling. I wasn't even like be able to use my phone properly when I see soldiers or policemen. Like one time I was like back in three months, I was about to meet, meet up with a friend back in Yangon. I was talking to her phone and then the other side of the road, there was the military and then the policemen, they were doing the checkpoint or something like that. My mom was telling me to like, to hang up the phone as soon as possible and like put it in the, put it in the purse. Like it was very great to see, like it was very great to be back because Bangkok never felt home because Myanmar is my home and Yangon is my home. It was great to see the friends back. I don't want to be in there, to be honest. I didn't feel safe every time I thought something was going to happen. And like at night, if we hear something knocking, we would just like just straight up scare all the time. And I assume like people are living in that constant fear all the time. But I'm assuming leaving the country doesn't solve all your problems either. I mean, people carry enormous a burden when they leave. And there's a different worry and a different fear than when you're, your immediate worries when you're in the country. Um, so mental health is a, is a huge problem for those in the country, those who've left and are worrying about friends and family back home. What are the kind of things that you've seen or, or maybe through the work that you're doing now are the main things affecting people in country and outside of country in terms of mental health at the moment? Right. So the, the projects we're doing at the moment is focusing on the people in the country because in the country a lot of people to be honest we don't we have like very little knowledge about mental health and we also have stigmas and misconceptions around mental health people never ask how are you feeling like when I ask to a friend like how are you feeling today and they would look at me like oh wait what it would be so weird for them so it's not normal to talk about our mental health and now I would say it's a good thing out of COVID and COVID. It's that people are starting to realize that mental health, this is something that we should really be 
taking care of. It's like mental health is as important as physical health because physical health, like we wouldn't feel ashamed to talk about like going to see uh, a doctor. Uh, oh, I have a stomach problem. I have to go see a doctor. But no one's going to come and tell you like, oh, I'm feeling like suicidal thoughts. I have no motivation. I can't do anything properly. Like no one will come and talk to you like this because if we talk about mental health, we think, oh, you, you crazy? Do you want to go to a mental hospital? Like this kind of thing. So the, the project, it's focusing on the people inside the country. And it is about raising the mental health awareness and destigmatizing of all these misconceptions and stigma. And I, I think you're, you're right in terms of the stigma. There's even stigma st- still in the Western countries around mm. mental health. So uh, I can imagine in Myanmar, are you finding that people are embracing what you're doing? Are more and more people reaching out? Are people afraid to talk about their feelings? Uh, how, how's the reaction been? The reaction has been really good, I would say, because I'm in charge of the social media. So I post and then I looked at the comments and all this kind of thing. The reaction has been very good and a lot of people trying to seek help. So it is very nice to see. And then like I attended like some of the networking events, some of the emotional workshops and and like some of the people at first they wouldn't talk about their feelings because I mean I, I was one of them. So I I'm sure they were feeling a bit uncomfortable talking about their feeling at first. But then after a while they started talking about their feelings. What I can see is that it's amazing to see they're like encouraging each other and feeling like, oh, I am not alone in this situation. Everyone is feeling like this. And they actually felt like it is okay to not to be okay. It's really amazing to see. Um, But then still, some of the people are like, they know that this is something they should seek help. But then in the back of their mind, like there was one participant, I remember she said that her brother, her little brother is like seeing a lot of things probably schizophrenia but like people encourage him and her to go seek a a professional help and he wouldn't he wouldn't do it because he felt that people might think he is crazy that he is lunatic or something like that it's very sad to hear um we encourage her and then she was like okay i'll try again so this kind of things yeah uh, and how how does it work then? Like, Charlie, you were saying that you've linked up, obviously, with some influencers, some, you know, well-known names, obviously, to help with the stigma attached. So if somebody goes to the website or, or your Facebook page, do they just reach out? Do you have different events, different things they can join? Do they chat to somebody? Uh, how does the thing operate? Yeah, so so basically what we've done, this, is, this has been uh, a six-month project. So it's now kind of, come to an end so what what we'd done basically is half of what we were doing was a social media campaign so that was working with influencers that was we developed like these these 24 posts that we then translated into these like different ethnic languages and we made graphics and animations and and videos that was one half Um, and the other half was basically we ran these kind of online workshops so like all across the country i think we in total, we ran about uh, 240 of them. Uh, sorry, 120, I mean, it was 120. And basically, the, the purpose of these workshops was to kind of introduce mental health to 
community leaders. So basically, we we identified people who are like quite active in their communities. So teachers, doctors, other healthcare workers, but then also people like the local shop owner who talks to like lots of people in their in their communities. Basically, with the idea being that if we can educate like this group about mental health, then that knowledge will kind of hopefully disseminate through their communities. Because I mean, a thing that we found is, I mean, like Sue said, we're we're not really starting at at square one here because it's not that people in Myanmar have kind of no knowledge about mental health. They have knowledge, but they have kind of a negative conception of it. So actually, it's it's kind of like we're starting at square minus one. Like we kind of have to before we can do any kind of real mental health work, we need to do these kind of public information campaigns to to let people know that it's it's something that's okay, basically. We had a lot of counselling sessions, as well as the group sessions. We also had individual sessions that were available for people if they needed any help. And what we found was, like, at the start, nobody wanted to to join these sessions. Everyone was like, oh, no, that's not for me. It's only when they, they did the kind of the group session, they started learning, learning about mental health and started to realise that there was, like, a real need for it. Only then did they start to kind of take up the the individual sessions. So that, that's kind of our... Our philosophy, I guess, would be to kind of lay the groundwork for additional kind of projects by doing these public awareness campaigns, basically. So you mentioned that like all of the resources that you've worked on in these six months are all on the website. And they're, you said, how many different ethnic languages? Uh, So 17 plus Burmese. Yeah. I can only think of how much work would go into being able to translate that into so many languages. (laughs) Um, so yeah. they're there and they're there for anyone to click on, avail of, uh, read. Can you give us an example of one or two of those resources? Like if, if someone went on to have a look, what they would find? Right. So when you go to the website, you will see Burmese, English and 17 different languages. You will see there. And mostly each language, there will be 24 main posts and then a mental health video and a cartoon series. But some languages might be different, like for example, Rakhine, uh, Line and Naga, and like a few of them will only have the first four mental health posts. It was because according to the, the projects that we were holding, we were only able to do the first four posts for some of the languages. But apart from that, the rest will have 24 main posts, which is like basic mental health. And it could be, I'll, I'll give you an example about the topic. The first post is like, what is mental health? It's basically like introduction to mental health. And the second one is about like, how do we deal with the stigma around mental health? Like this kind of post. And then from there, we do like, like physical health to mental health. For example, like, do you sleep well? Do you eat well? And then also like psychosocial support, such as like, how can you be better in social life? Things like that. And then the, the last category will be like, things not to say to a suicidal person and then the depression and the difference between depression and depressed and all this kind of things. For the Burmese page, you will see the influencers' videos, which they also talked about their mental health. I was just wondering in terms of obviously what the, the whole of the country is going through right now, in your opinion, whether there's any kind of like normalization of dealing with trauma I don't know whether that makes sense because you're talking about the stigma attached and things but I just wondered what your message would be to people that are kind of sitting listening and thinking well yeah this is awful this is terrible I'm dealing with all this but someone else in that state has just had an airstrike so 
I just wondered what your message to those kind of people might be. I mean, I think it's it's a it's a huge thing. Like, I think Sue might be able to talk about this better than I will. But like, survivor's guilt, like, kind of always, always thinking and always being able to see that other people are doing a lot worse. But I mean, I think again, I'm definitely not a mental health expert, but I think that should never be a, a reason to kind of disregard one's own mental health. I think people should obviously empathize with with others, but then at the same time, they also need to kind of pay attention to to how they're feeling as well. Yeah, like I, I was talking to some of my friends. I mean, I was also one of these person like, who had to not had to leave, but like I left Myanmar and I had a lot of guilt when I left Myanmar. And also, like as Charlie said, the survivor guilt, like I was having all of these emotions and all of these things, but I wasn't talking to anybody because I was like, oh, I, I wouldn't talk to my friend back in Myanmar. Their situation are worse than me. But then at one point I realized that and attended these counseling classes makes me realize that I am not okay. I will not be able to do anything. And I can't just sit there and think that like, I can't be like that. So in order to help others, I have to be okay. If I'm okay, I can help others. And I talked to one of the, one of the person that I met when I was back in like Bangkok. What I've heard from this person is that like, he was having a lot of guilt that he was trying to make this like counselor workshops. He was trying to like manage them. But then I asked him one question, like one simple question. How are you feeling? Are you okay? Because doing all this mental well-being workshops are not easy because you have to talk to a lot of people and they will talk to like, how are they feeling? And all of this like negative thoughts and like emotions, they keep been absorbing it. And then I was like, how, how do you relax after? this session and he was like I didn't do anything I told him to take care of yourself if you're not okay you will not be able to have others and he admitted that after all of this session it's quite energy training and he wouldn't be able to do anything the day after so if you are not okay you will not be able to help others so please make sure put yourself first mm. and also it is okay to be okay yeah. So basically these, these 24 posts are kind of divided over into six modules. So one of the posts is about like the importance of self care. Like as Sue said, like if you're not okay, then you can't, you can't help anyone else. And I think the other important point is while it's okay to not be okay, it's also you shouldn't feel guilty for feeling okay as well. Like that's, that's definitely something that's a common, like kind of misconception, I would say. I mean, one of the things that I, I often hear talking to people on the ground in Myanmar as well, in terms of I know the usual stigmas with mental health, you know, especially men, you know, who seem to be in, in most countries more reluctant to seek help. But there's also a feeling is like it's a privilege, like only privileged people can have time to deal with their mental health. You know, the rest of us are just trying to stay alive. And it's like, you know, where where is there the time for me to deal with what I'm going through? I have to get up. I have to work, you know, 12 14 hour days just to try and put food on the table and keep my family alive. And there is kind of that attitude uh, that people seem to think, you know, mental health is something that people who, you know, have a bit of time on their hands to sit around and think about things. What, what would you say to that, Sue? Uh, like that kind of attitude that maybe people have about their mental health that look, it's not something they, they have time to think about or deal with. I mean, it's also hard from a person like me talking like this, right? Because to be completely fair, I've never been in their position. 
if I would be in their position, I would just be like, yeah, well, what the hell? I mean, as you said, I can't even have rice in the in the pot to eat for today. So why should I take care of it? If someone's feeling like this, what I want to say is that you don't have to give a lot of time for this. And self-care is like doing something that you feel happy at that moment. Like, for example, reading or maybe listening to a music. Like, that's also one of the misconceptions that we, we think, oh, we have to do a meditation. We have to do this, do that, do that. No, not really like that. Like, sometimes if you really feel like suffocating, like, have a walk. Or like, instead of like trying to stay in that position, maybe like find something that makes you feel relaxed and make you feel comfortable at that moment. I do think you make quite a good point there because sometimes people have this idea that mental health means I have to sit around for hours and meditate and I have to, you know, have a massage or I have to do all of these things. But it's the recognizing how you're feeling and acknowledging those feelings is a simple thing you can do and finding something that can step out of it. Because I do worry sometimes people are like, well, I don't have time to, to worry about these things, but someday it's all going to hit them, you know, because all that builds up in your mind and you're just going to crash or you're going to, you know, break as a person. So it is in everyone's interest to, I mean, think about how they're feeling or at least recognize those feelings and take steps to improve or help their situation from their mental health perspective yeah I think just um going on to what you said there just like there's all kinds of levels of physical ailments and maybe not the right word but it's got to be the same for mental health as well like there's going to be people that are incapacitated in terms of their day-to-day life because of mental health issues and then there's going to be people that are going to be dealing with like post-traumatic stress syndrome because right now they're just trying to survive and just being aware that wherever you are on that scale that it's still something that you should be consciously aware of that you've got to look after your brain as well as you have to look after your body Um, and there's no luxury in that it's an essential part of being alive and being a conscious being Mm, definitely I mean I think so with mental health there's quite an important distinction between psychology and then psychiatry so psychiatry is dealing with more kind of people who have kind of serious mental health conditions, so like schizophrenia, bipolar, that kind of thing. Those kind of serious conditions, they require professional, normally kind of medical help, basically. So we're kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum, basically. We're kind of like psychology, but introduction to, to psychology, really. So I've spoken to people who are in the psychiatric field in Myanmar and that is even more difficult because that relies a lot on medication. And now that medication is like a lot harder to get. So you kind of have all the problems that, that kind of we've encountered of the kind of stigma around psychological issues. But that's kind of amplified by the fact that you can't even get the, the medication that you need for some of these kind of like psychiatric issues. But I think, yeah, I mean, I was, I was speaking to someone the other day and they told me that to be like an accredited psychologist, you have to do a master's and a PhD. And in Myanmar, there are eight, there are eight people who have done this course. So there are, I mean, I'm not saying that you, you have to do this, this course to be able to kind of give help, but there are eight people basically who, who have done that training in the whole of the country, right? So, I mean, there's a population of what, 50, 60 million. There are eight people who have got that kind of qualification. And I mean, there's so much work that needs to be done. These problems were were all there before COVID, before the coup. And it's it's just kind of 
after COVID, after COVID, that kind of people have started to realise how bad the foundation was, I would say. And actually, Charlie, you mentioned earlier, which which kind of ties into that, is your background in working with NGOs and maybe becoming a bit disillusioned. Mm-hmm. But what role have they got in kind of helping this in Myanmar? Because, you know, they get a lot of funding internationally, you know. Yeah. How, how much could they be doing uh, in terms of, I know the humanitarian crisis, obviously making sure people can eat and have food and stuff is, is important, but is there more they could be doing with the funding that they're getting to support things like mental health in Myanmar? Yes, it's quite a big question because I, I, I kind of got disillusioned working for NGOs. So then I guess I kind of decided to start my own one, basically. So we were directly funded by USAID for this project. And I guess we were quite lucky. Like, I, I think after the coup, I think a lot of like kind of NGOs were a bit like kind of like deer in headlights kind of thing. They weren't really sure how to use funding because, I mean, for a lot of these organizations, they were working, I mean, quite rightly with Ministry of Health, Ministry of Education. And a lot of the budget was kind of going towards supporting these these kind of institutions, which I think is is kind of a great idea. But then as soon as there's a coup and then suddenly you don't want to work with the government anymore. There's all this, how do you spend money on kind of health and education without going through the authorities, basically? And I think there's there's like a big debate. I mean, like, because I know that a lot of NGOs get stick for doing these photo ops with the military government. I, I don't want to pick a side, but I mean, I guess there's an argument, right? Like, if you're there to save people's lives and you have to take this photo, you have to get this handshake with this terrible, like, government to be able to get permission to work in these areas i don't know it's you're kind of damned if you do and you're you're kind of damned if you don't i would say and yeah i think there are kind of arguments on on both sides but yeah i think going back to kind of mental health i've now kind of had to learn about the kind of the intricacies of of kind of ngo funding and donor funding and basically i think there's a debate as to whether mental health whether it comes under kind of development or whether it comes under kind of humanitarian so Apparently, I've, I just learned this funding either goes to kind of developmental projects or like humanitarian. And it's, it's kind of a, a big debate at the moment whether or not mental health should be considered something that is kind of humanitarian, like necessary or, or whether it's something that is not as important as developmental. So, for example, like humanitarian would be the, the kind of the allocation of like basics, like food, like medicine, that kind of thing, whereas once people's kind of basic needs are met, then developmental will be kind of making their lives better. I'm definitely of the opinion that I think mental health should be considered a humanitarian and therefore very necessary part of any kind of aid intervention. But I mean, I guess it's not as kind of obvious as other, if someone is starving or if someone like needs medicine, then it's quite clear. But if, if someone has mental health issues, sometimes it's not as apparent, basically. I think you make a good point. And I, I do I do understand that the debates around, you know, legitimizing the military, shaking hands. And it's a tricky one. And I, I always go back to, you know, these are organizations like the UN, for example, who mm-hmm. should know how to manage these situations in, yeah. in a better way with the access to resources, knowledge, information. They've been involved for decades in countries around the world in all kinds of conflicts. I mean, surely yeah. they can think about how they might do things where the optics are not so bad, you know, Um, for sure. But also there is the argument of like getting money to the ground and getting resources in, you know, 
I've had people say to me, look, I will work with the military if it means I can save these lives. And I get mm. it. But in the long run, are you saving lives? You know, maybe in the yeah. short run you are, but you have to think long term. So and I think that's the issue with mental health as well. We can look at the immediate effects, but what are the long term effects going to be on the mm. population of Myanmar? Like how many yeah. young people have been robbed of their futures? How are they going to mm. come through this? And I know a lot of the 88 generation, you know, so many of them still suffer now yeah. from trauma back then. And then to have this all again, I understand it might be development, mental health, but in Myanmar's situation, it, it's going to become critical for sure. But I think it's great, the project that you're doing, and maybe getting more people to try and get funding for projects around mental health is a way to go and encourage it. And hopefully more organizations will will support it. But I do worry for the future of the people there uh, coming through this. Like even Charlie, when you mentioned just the videos and Ruth, you've said this so many times because I I don't do Facebook. So I never yeah. I think this constant stream of videos that people get all the time and just these horrific and so many young people are seeing that and there's no yep. way to stop that. I just don't know long, like your project is great. And, and the thing is, it's, it's like most projects, they end. And yep. your resources are there forever, which is fantastic. But, you know, there needs to be, I mean, more investment in this this area, I think, for the people of Myanmar. Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, it's difficult for us because, I mean, the elephant in the room, right, is a lot of the reasons that people's mental health is so bad is because of the military coup. I mean, like I kind of said before, there's there's like underlying issues. But then there's the debate that do we do we kind of go out there and say that? And then suddenly we're putting people's staff like in the country, we're putting people's lives at risk, basically, if we kind of say that stuff. And then for a lot of distribution channels that we use, because Facebook we use a lot, but then we also try and put stuff out on other media as well. So it's a tricky, it's a delicate balance. Anytime you speak out no matter where you are in the world, you, you know, you could be, you know, risking your own freedom to go back in and out of Myanmar. I mean, you've, you've mentioned about being back yourself, but also the people who choose to work with you uh, yeah. and, and their family and friends in the country. Like we know so many activists, you know, who are citizens abroad, whose families, you know, have had visits from military and they have tried yeah. because of their, you know, speaking out in their respective countries. So there is huge risks, but if people don't take those risks, the situation, does it improve for anyone or do they just learn to live under brutality and just find a way to kind of get along? I mean, Sue, you, what do you want to see for your country? I want to go back and not feeling all of deep and safe and like being in fear 24 hours, even in your sleep. Like I'm sure people are dreaming all these in outside of the country. People are dreaming like all of these brutally things that we've seen on on Facebook and all of the social media. So I want to be able to go back to my country and don't have to worry about my visas or basically having Burmese passport is not a great thing at this moment. So as I said, I want to be able to go back to my country and like not having to feel unsafety or in fear. Yeah, and I think... The thing with with military, you know, running the country or trying to run it, I should say, is that they can do what they want. You know, there is no rule of law. You know, they're not answerable to to the international community. And 
Like I have friends who've gone back in several times and every time I'm like, well, what about the next time? That could be the time the military decide, okay, well, you know, we're a bit short on cash. So let's arrest you at the airport this time, you know, and there's always that fear, you know, and you might be safe now, but when is it going to be your turn? And as long as they're in power, that fear is always going to be there. And that's not to say things were wonderful under the previous government. No one, no one is saying that. I don't think anyone would say that, but. I mean, there were certain elements of, you know, you, you didn't have to worry about being killed and tortured when you flew into the airport, you know, basically yeah. that there is. And I think I was, I was talking to someone about this. I think, for example, the, the laws in Myanmar, if you, if you look up like the laws in Myanmar, it's ridiculous. Like the, the law that governs mental health in Myanmar was written in like 1912. It's called the, the 1912 like, Lunacy Act. Like that's is, that's is literally the name of the law that kind of governs mental health up to today in Myanmar, and it's, it's fascinating because it's like a colonial era law, and and basically like if you violate this law, you're liable to pay a fine in like Indian rupees, basically, which is ridiculous. But like legally, you can get arrested for violating this 1912 lunacy law and have to pay a fine. And if you look at so India, for example, had that as part of like British India had that same exact law. But they updated it like three times, I think, in like in the thirties and the in the seventies and then like recently. But in Myanmar, that law has never been updated since nineteen twelve. And I mean it's it's kind of fascinating on one level, but then there are so many other laws like this. Like for drugs, for example, the law is again is like over a hundred years old and hasn't been updated. And like some people think that this is because the legal system is like very bureaucratic and slow. But like another theory is that the laws are like this on purpose because there's always like some kind of old obscure law that someone is breaking at some point but i mean as as a, like a foreigner living in myanmar you have to do this this frc right and if you look at the frc it's like the 1948 registration of foreigners which is like wh- why are you filling out a form that's like 80 years old but I, I think a lot of kind of like the reasoning behind having all these kind of old obscure laws is you're always violating some law like there's always, there's always going to be some kind of like obscure law that you're kind of like violating without even realizing. But yeah, being in Yangon and having that kind of fear of there's no real rule of law and you can get arrested or, or fined or, or like detained for basically anything at any point yeah. is scary. During the time that I was there, I was, I was very naive and kind of felt like the country had changed in a lot of ways. And mm. my host, me and my friend, who's like, quite significantly younger than me not to give away my age but I remember (laughs) the soldiers coming to her house after the coup and searching her phone and looking to see what Facebook posts she she'd posted and her calling me absolutely distraught because she'd lived in the Myanmar I'd lived in like the majority of her life she'd known the Myanmar that I experienced for a very short time where you thought there was this freedom and you could post what you wanted to and just that kind of violation because those laws are still there like exactly what you've just said, because you can still find something to be able to abuse people's human rights in that way, because they've never actually changed it, even though there was this short period where it felt like it had changed. So just in terms of grappling with that for your mental health is just, I don't know how, how people are, are processing that. It's just, wow. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things we always say about me and our people, and I know people can be very judgmental of the term resilience like you know I, I hear a lot of very you know 
very woke activists saying, oh, don't be calling people resilient. But I, I can't think of a better word for Myanmar people. Like they are incredibly resilient and resourceful. And like what they have suffered since the coup and even COVID, like the way people have come together, there is heartwarming stories all the time of communities pulling together to help each other. Like when there was shortages of oxygen, like everyone was trying to help each other. And even now, like the way, you know, the resistance that has formed, you know, just regular people, Myanmar people are tough, you know, they've been through a lot, but they deserve, they deserve a future. And I just worry that if, if we don't get more support for them and from the international community, uh, more supports for things like mental health, you know, even if the political situation resolves itself in time, the long-term effects from that, you know, people may never recover from if we don't get people wanting to help and prioritizing people's mental health in the country. Definitely. It's just kind of, it's kind of weird, like coming back to the UK and like just talking to people. Because obviously they, they all asked, like, how's everything going in Myanmar? Because it was, it was in the news for a little bit, like in 2021 and now it's not in the news anymore. So people kind of assume that it's kind of gone back to like, everything's okay, but obviously everything is not okay. And just having these conversations with people, it's just kind of impossible to kind of really like close friends of mine. Like it's impossible to have the, the conversation about Myanmar and kind of really get through to them what is really going on. It's not like, it's not like a language barrier or anything like that. There's just kind of a, a lack of comprehension. It's, it's so kind of out of people's conception of, of like daily life, what's going on. Because I mean, if someone commits a crime, oh, you go to the police. But what if the police are the ones getting the crime? Oh, then you go to the army. But th- th- there's just no kind of way of getting through to people that having a resistance is like a good thing. Like, how do you kind of condone that kind of violence? But I mean, you, you can only really kind of condone that kind of violence when the alternative is is so much worse and just the, these kind of conversations like over cups of tea and like with like friends it, it's just quite hard to kind of really get across the kind of scale of, of what's going on and and I mean you said just just now that kind of me and my people are resilient I mean if you look at this coup is not it's not a new thing this is not like a new faction that are going to come in and modernize the economy this is a return of a group of people who have basically been running the country into the ground since like 1962. I mean, like when Singapore was made independent, they were like, oh, we're going to turn Singapore into the next like Rangoon. Cause back then it was like the kind of the, the jewel of like Southeast Asia and just decades and decades of economic mismanagement, poverty. And then suddenly you have this like kind of five year, like 10 year period of, of kind of hope, like semi democracy. And to have this kind of old faction like come back and like take over. I don't know. I just. It's so cool, I guess. I, I don't know. Yeah, and you're right. It is a going backwards. It's not something new. I'm wondering, Sue, if you would have, from your own personal experience, strategies you use to help you cope or that you, you would recommend to people in terms of their mental health. Just from, like, I know I'm not asking you from a professional point of view, but just from a personal point of view, things that you find have worked that you've tried. I mean, everyone has different coping mechanisms. So for me, what I do is like, as I mentioned before, we Burmese people, like if we are in a bad situation, we tend to help a lot other people. But what we forget is to take care of ourselves. So that's what happened to me. So I was listening to a lot of friends back in Myanmar talking like how they're feeling, like what they've been feeling at that moment. And then I realized that, okay, 
I'm not able to do this anymore because it's absorbing all the time, not letting out. So I've found a way to let it out. Is that just acknowledge my feelings, like you said, acknowledge my feelings and drawing a line for myself. If I cannot do this anymore, I have to like say it like at that point. I mean, it's basically take care of yourself first. If you're okay, you will be able to help more. If you're not okay, at one point you're gonna exploit. So yeah, again, please take care of yourself. If you're not able to help yourself, you can't help others. Yeah, if that means maybe stepping back for a, a time until you work on yourself, whether from whatever activities you're doing or from as you, even just listening to your friends, just like stepping back is not a giving up or a quitting. It's just a recognizing you need to look after yourself for a period of time and then you will be even more help to everybody else once you've passed that. Sometimes like being on Facebook can be a lot of energy draining. So sometimes it's good to have like social media break for like, I don't know, maybe two days, three days, if you can make a week. Like being on the phone can be a lot of energy draining these days. And everything we see is like, it's a lot of like horrible news. So it is, again, it is okay to be okay too. Please take care of yourself. Yeah, I'm a big, big believer in stepping away from social media full stop <laughs> for, for, for many reasons, but particularly mental health, but even taking those breaks. I know for people who are, and in, in Myanmar, I always try to explain to people, Facebook is the internet. It's not just like an app. You talk to your friends, it is the whole internet for most people. So to tell them to delete their Facebook is like telling them to delete the internet. You know, it's it's yeah. not that easy. Charlie, do you have any strategies that you find personally have worked for you that you would recommend to people in terms of mental health? I think basically the ones that kind of Sue have just covered, just kind of acknowledging that while it's important to help other people, you can only really help other people if if you yourself are okay. I mean, it's like it's like when you're on an airplane, right? And they say, like, when the gas mask comes down, you have to put yours on first before you put on, on other people's. I think it's the same thing. You need to, you kind of need to acknowledge that you can only help others when you yourself are like, okay. Yeah, I guess that would be my, my kind of advice. And, and how, how, do we, how do we look after ourselves? Like, so stepping away from things, uh, saying no to things, eating well. I, mean, I think another, I think. another like kind of big message that I've, I've kind of discovered through this, this kind of process is, the importance of like kind of family and friends and community, just talking to people, kind of having this kind of like interaction doesn't necessarily have to be about mental health. But I think that's where people get a lot of kind of support and a lot of power from is is these kind of connections between people. So I think those kind of interactions are, are also like very important, I would say. You're nodding, Sue. So you're thinking, yeah, that support network is important. Oh, yeah, I think it's very important because like, Having to attend all of these like mental well-being, you need a community where you can express freely about how you're feeling without being worried or like being weird about it. That's what I do with my friends. Like before, I didn't talk to them about like, how I'm feeling. Like now, it's go like vice versa. I listen to them, and then they also listen to me. Also with the family, right? It's really it's like an amazing feeling to be able to share how you how you actually feeling inside in Burmese is there even a way to say like because obviously the the normal is like is your health okay like Nikala or like is there even a way to say like because this is something that we kind of discovered because in in English you would say like how are you feeling but there's no kind of short way to say that 
in Burmese, right? I mean, it's not even, how would you go about like saying? Ask me, have I eaten? Have you eaten? <laughs> Your basic, oh, oh, have you eaten? Yeah. Oh, um, we sometimes mention like, like, how's the situation? So mm. it can, it can mean like, how are you doing? How are you feeling? It can be like, it's not like normally... specifically about feeling though, is it? Like, a chain A is like, it could be, it could be yeah. about anything. It's not specifically about feelings, emotions. Like, you'd never, you'd never say like, Belo Kanzada. Like, you'd never say like, yeah. you'd never greet someone really like that. Like, how are you actually feeling, right? Yeah. And yeah. Th- that was quite interesting, like, to trying to do all these translations, working out, because a big issue with these translations is that the language kind of mimics people's, like, use of it, basically. So, there isn't, like we kind of just discussed, there's no simple way of saying like something that seems so simple, like how are you feeling? There's no kind of real way of saying that. I think that kind of, that illustrates the kind of problem you're, you're facing with trying to do mental health stuff in, in Burmese is that the language doesn't really exist for it. Maybe that's a place to start, you know, people talking to the friends and using that kind of language and asking how they are, you know, there could be a small way in which it develops, you know, and becomes more widespread. Mm. But if you don't have the language to talk about how you're feeling, <laughs> how do we get yeah. to the point for, for a lot of people? You know, it's it's fascinating, actually. I'm just thinking about in terms of like British society, if you go back, not that far back, then it would be very normalized not to say how you're feeling as well. It's a big good day to you, sir. And, you know, it's it's been an evolution in terms of our society and the language mm. is there. You normalize what is your socially acceptable greeting to someone and what is okay to share yeah. so it's definitely something that still has a long way to go in the UK but it has come a long way as well and it's yeah. just normal of it and it'll be a developing process I guess rather than a language barrier um, yeah definitely I think maybe we should start to try and like kind of normalize like, so Sue what would it be like if you were to ask someone like how are you feeling as like a greeting what would you say I would say I mean, I don't normally ask my friends. I mean, the, the friends I ask, it will be my friends that are quite internet. Sometimes we even talk about our mental health, not even in Burmese, because it's sometimes some of the words that used in our own language is a bit cringe. Like, it doesn't feel comfortable to use. That's why we sometimes mention how we're feeling in English. But I mean, English is not my first language, right? My mother language is Burmese. So some of the words it's like mentioning in Burmese is like more deeper than talking in English, but it's the same with others also. Like we feel more comfortable talking in English than in Burmese. Mm-hmm. So I, I normally ask like, how are you feeling? What's going on these days? Like in English, but not in Burmese. That's interesting. Well, maybe there's the next project. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a book on how to speak about mental health in Burmese. <laughs> yeah. but it, it was like a, it was a fascinating part of the project, like trying to like translate some of these words. Because I mean, a lot of these words, the technical kind of mental health stuff doesn't really exist in Burmese. And even for the like other ethnic languages, I mean, trying to kind of like describe what in English is like a one word kind of concept it doesn't exist in Burmese or these ethnic languages you kind of had to <laughs> work out like a a way to describe this like one phrase that didn't take up like kind of like half a paragraph of kind of like explaining everything that was that was like quite quite interesting I mean I, I can't say that I understood most of it but like it was quite an interesting linguistic challenge basically 
In terms of like, I think that this has been a super conversation and it's given me a lot to think about, but also I think it will be very beneficial to people, even just in terms of the conversation and getting it going. And the fact that your resources are in so many languages, you know, you know, there's young people listening, they can hopefully show it to their parents or show it to their aunts or uncles or, you know, the older generation. But I'm just wondering, was there anything that we hadn't touched on that maybe you wanted to mention or say, or, you know, if you want to just tell us where we can find that information again about your website or I mean I don't want you to leave the conversation not having kind of said anything that you wanted to say Mm. I mean I think something I would like to say which we haven't kind of touched upon yet is like the decision to to translate these resources because I mean a lot of people in Myanmar speak Burmese even if it's not a first language it's it's like kind of the the language that kind of people speak to, to kind of communicate and Basically, the reason behind kind of translating these resources into like all these ethnic languages, I mean, some of these languages that we chose are only spoken by 10, 15,000 people. So in terms of kind of like cost benefit analysis, then the, the Burmese resources are going to be a lot more, going to get to a lot more people than the, the ethnic resources. But the reason kind of behind doing this was that if you're, if you're talking about mental health, I mean, like Sue kind of just said it, it needs to be, in a language that you kind of feel comfortable in. There's, there's no point doing a mental health workshop in like your secondary language because you can't really talk about complex feelings and emotions in a language that isn't like your, your mother tongue, basically. And another, another huge issue is that for certain areas of the country, Burmese is the language of the oppressor. It's like the language of the soldier that's only ever spoken by people who like kind of come into a village or something. So to develop, to kind of give mental health trainings in a language a language like that, just in a language like that is, is kind of hugely problematic. So that was kind of the reason behind kind of working in, in all these different languages. And yeah, it's, it's, it's been so kind of like fascinating to, to learn about all these different, the kind of like the linguistic history and like some languages are like barely ever written down. Like for some languages, there are like so many different like scripts. Most languages are, most of them aren't, aren't read. A lot of them are kind of just kind of oral basically. And then kind of like learning about the, the history of like these languages and like the, the kind of the process of Burmanization where basically some of these languages are like illegal. They were like made illegal as a way to kind of like unify the country. So I think encouraging this kind of like linguistic identity is, is like super important. And it's definitely something that we want to apply to like other kind of project areas as well. So not just, not just mental health, but any kind of kind of NGO intervention, I think, should be available in these different languages, even if it is, say, like a group of like 10,000 people who would benefit, but otherwise have never like had resources translated for them before. So so like an example, we, we translated this into uh, Moken, the, the people who live on the, like the islands in like Dawei and have very kind of like limited internet access and very kind of like nomadic, basically. I don't know how many actual people we were able to get through to, but I think letting people know that, that they're kind of included, that, that language is important as like an identity, basically, was was like kind of like the big motivation behind us doing that. Even though it was, I feel very sorry for my team having to work in all these different, we had lots of like different nicknames for all the languages because obviously we couldn't, we couldn't read them. <laughs> we had to like, yeah, I mean, I think Sue can talk a, a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, even even me, I mean, I grew up in like Yangon, right? So like some of the language is very like new to me. So we give like some type of nicknames to some of the 
some of them I cannot even see it on my laptop because like you need like specific font for that language. But yeah, it's very fascinating and I get a lot of struggles from the translator side, some from our side. But it's really great that we did it and yeah, thanks to Charlie. <laughs> you really did a great job. It's a great project. And, and I, I get what you're saying, like, you know, thinking of anyone who speaks more than one language, you know, those complex emotions to try and talk about them, you know, when you you don't have a full grasp of the language. So it is great that you, you've done it so that people can access it in the language they're most comfortable in. And I hadn't even considered the fact that, you know, the oppressor's language as well for many people. I mean, even that in itself. So it's it's a great initiative. Uh, it, the resources are fantastic. You know, we've had our Burmese team members look at it and they've confirmed how good it is. So, like, obviously, we will encourage people to take a look. I hope there's another project on the way because you guys are doing great. <laughs> and I'd love to see what else you, you do, because it is an issue that, uh, you know, sadly, everywhere we need to bring more awareness to and, and kind of reduce the stigma and I uh, encourage people to look after themselves as best they can. Uh, times are hard, but got to find the hope and the beauty in a lot of this. And there's a lot of hope in what you've done, you know, for people. And it's a really great project. And uh, I really enjoyed chatting to you both about it. So thank you both so much for your time. And uh, if I remember correctly, it's uh, MyanmarMentalHealth.com is the website. And the Facebook is It's Okay to Not Be Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think the website is mentalhealthmyanmar.com, not mentalhealthmyanmar.com. But we'll share the links and uh, we'll share your resources uh, when the episode airs so people can listen and then they can see the work alongside it. Can I do one, uh, one more thing? I kind of mentioned that we focus on the people in Myanmar. No, actually, it, it is for everyone inside or outside of the country. Yeah, and also thanks to the team members and everyone like helped to, to participate to make this project happen. Thank you guys too. Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast. Spelled A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.